You're listening to. And welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here with an author chat, this time with author Ye Chun, about her new book, Straw Dogs of the Universe, a multi-generational novel about um, early Chinese American immigrants in the American West. Uh, as always, the Books and Boba podcast is supported by you, our listeners, um, at patreon.com slash booksandboba, um, where members get access to our members-only Discord server to talk about books and other things, as well as our monthly bonus podcast, Boba Chats. So if you're interested in checking those out, um, please come and support us at Patreon. We really appreciate it. and really helps us um, keep the Books and Boba podcast alive. Um, but yeah, we had a really great chat with Ye Chun um, about her book. Yeah, Ye Chun is the author of How, which was longlisted for the 2022 Andrew Carnegie Medal for excellence in fiction, uh, she also wrote a, a novel in the Chinese language, Peach Tree in the Sea. I think this is the first time we've interviewed an author who actually wrote a novel in like the motherland tongue. Yeah, that wasn't like translated well into yeah. like, the, the native language, right? Yeah, so it was really interesting to hear about Ye Chun's experience working as a translator and how that uh, translate into her writing. <laughs> and we also had a really great time chatting with her about her book. We asked her about her inspirations, about writing a story about the uh, American West through a Chinese-American perspective, as well as her own personal connections with the Chinese railroad workers. So um, yeah, um, please enjoy our conversations with Ye Chun. We are here with Ye Chun, the author of Straw Dogs of the Universe. Welcome to the show, Chun. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You know, as always, we love to learn more about our authors when they come on our show. So, you know, you're not only a novelist, but you're also a translator. You have um, a bilingual background. Um, can you tell us about how you became involved in literature and books and, and writing novels? Yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, so I've always kept a journal ever since I could put sentences together. And uh, occasionally I would write things with line breaks, whether they're, they may, that may or may not be poetry. Um, but uh, the majority of the years I grew up was spent you know, doing schoolwork uh, with a goal to pass a cutthroat and uh, um, college entrance exam. So I didn't really have a lot of time uh, creating my own stories. Uh, then I majored in English in college, and uh, my preoccupation then was to learn the language. And after um, I graduated, I got a job writing for an uh, English publication uh, in southern China. Then after, and that's when I started to write routinely in English. Um, and after several years of doing that, I had the desire to just 
go to a place that's brand new to me and just write what mattered to me. Um, so I got in a writing program here and started writing. Um, you know, started seeing this is the thing I want to do and start doing it ever since. And I did listen to your podcast before several episodes, <laughs> and it seems that um, um, there's a common theme when your your writer is talking about um, their past towards writing is that uh, their parents uh, may not see that writing as a viable career path, at least initially. I would say my parents are both similar and different. You know, for them, the priority is also to do something in order to make a living, right? They are actually the you know the ones who suggested that I majored in English in college because I was not good at science. And, uh, you know, among the humanities majors, English was the, a useful one because China was going through the, you know, economic reform period and having an English major, um, you know, was likely to lend you a well-paying job. Um, so there's always that kind of concern. But on the other hand, my both my parents are book lovers. My mom is a retired librarian, and my dad loves book reading books too. And they actually both wrote at certain point in their life. So you know, writing is something encouraged in the family. Oh, that's so lovely. I love it that your both of your parents uh, used to write. I mean, that talent definitely passed down. To you, I think it's really interesting that they pushed you uh, towards studying English because English in America that's kind of seen as a what are you doing with your life? This is not a useful <laughs> uh, useful degree. But because uh, you were studying in you were raised in China, um, it's it's a different lens. And um, I just want to ask you, like, did you grow up reading a lot of uh, English literature or was it like primarily focusing more on uh, national literature? Uh, so I grew up reading mostly um, Chinese literature or you know, maybe some English literature in translation. But when I was majoring in English, I read everything mostly in English. Um, so that that was my early you know, access to literature written in English. You know, after I came here, I did find out that um, writing creatively in English turns out to be a lot more challenging than writing journalistically. Um, so I took a couple of fiction workshops and I really didn't like the, the things I produced. <laughs> then I switched to poetry and just learned that, you know, poetry is, seems to be a more tolerating genre for a forgiving genre for non-native speakers because it just involves a, a lot of your words. Um, and I worked out this self-translation process. You know, I would write all, all, all my first drafts um, in Chinese. Then I would translate it back and forth between the two languages. And um, uh, it worked well and it sort of benefited from my bilingualism instead of having the two languages, you know, fighting each other. Uh, so after several years of that, I, you know, 
um, wrote a novel in Chinese about China. Um, and it seems that um, living away from the country sort of afforded me a more panoramic view of the country. Uh, then later, when I went back to school to get a PhD, I had to use English so intensively. And I find myself um, writing uh, my journal entries directly in English. That's when I sort of start to, you know, English become, that's when English became my uh, dominant writing language. Yeah. I'm really curious about when you're writing, when you're learning to write fiction, what was it about writing in English that was so hard? Yeah. So when I first came here, that was 1999, um, uh, I felt like writing creatively, you really have to, you know, tap into your intuition. And back then, you know, my native language, Chinese, is what flows, what flow, right? And English just felt very kind of artificial. And its words didn't flow. They felt um, forced out. And they've, they've, I, yeah, I didn't feel like I couldn't write with conviction. Um, so, so then I decided to, you know, just write in Chinese. And um, until I, English became a more natural language because after living here for 20 also years, Chinese sort of started to, you know, some of them actually fade away. Some of my Chinese just faded away because I didn't get to use it every day. I, you know, didn't read a lot of literature in Chinese. You know, just all the things. I was so immersed in English. And I just slowly rise upon <laughs> and become the, the, the major working language. And nowadays, um, I guess the main dif- difficulty um, is maybe the lack of naturalness in the sense that native language pick up, you know, you pick up a language naturally. You know, then if you read a sentence out loud, you instinctively know whether it sounds right or not, right? You know, I, I, I already adopted that, um, but... You know, sometimes I'm tripped uh, on prepositions. You know, <laughs> is this off? Is this for? Is it in? Uh, is those kind of things. Um, those are things I sometimes have to look up. Yeah. So we've had Anton Her on our show before. He is a Korean translator. And um, he's mentioned how translating is almost a discipline of writing itself. And... I'm just curious as to like how has your background as a translator helped you as a creative writer? Yeah, it's uh, it definitely helps a lot. I think the main benefit um, of translating is paying such close attention to every detail of the languages. Um, so you know, you know, in my own writing, I want everything, every little thing to work well, you know, every word is the right word in the right place. I want all the punctuations to be right. I think it's just that kind of precision um, you develop through translation is something that um, 
that's something I、um, integrate into my own writing as well. And is your style different when you are writing in Chinese as opposed to English? Because I've noticed、um, in the past,、um, I would read, what is it like? I like Keigo Higashino, for example. He's a Japanese novelist, and I would read passages that was translated in Korean. And it is a completely different style as opposed to it was written in English. But the original language is in Japanese, so I'm. Really curious as to like if the style of your writing,、uh, you know, translates into English when you're going back and forth. Oh, when when I was working on poetry, yeah, when I when I did self translation,、um, sometimes I would change the original when I translate, you know, from Chinese to English because、um, I was not just translating; I was also rewriting. Re- rewriting, revising. So sometimes I will leave. Yeah, I will leave the versions different, the Chinese version, English version, because some words just work better in Chinese. Some works better in English because you know you're working on both, not just the sense but also the sound for poetry. Uh, so maybe maybe that's what's different between the two languages. You kind of want to make them both work, and it doesn't matter. They don't have to be identical. It's it's not even possible for the two versions to be identical, right? You know, translation is kind of recreation.、Um, it's not reproduction. So yeah, there's a there's that difference. So I wanted to、uh, get into your most recent release, Straw Dogs of the Universe.、Uh, can you tell our reader readers?、Uh, can you tell our listeners、uh, a little bit about it? Oh, definitely.、Um, so, Straw Dogs of the Universe is a historical novel about nineteenth-century Chinese immigrants in the American West.、Uh, The plot centers around a girl looking for her father in California, and if I have to、um, summarize the book in one sentence, I would say、uh, it's about four Chinese immigrants looking for family fulfillment and belonging in a land that doesn't welcome them. And where did? The inspiration come from for your book, like, do you have personal history with、um, the first wave of Chinese immigration in America? I do. I do have a personal history. My paternal great great grandfather、um, actually came here to build the transcontinental railroad、uh, in the eighteen sixties. He stayed for about twenty years and returned to China. Um, but even before this,、um, you know, I actually didn't find out about this until that summer when I was researching for the novel. I always knew that this ancestor had worked overseas for twenty years, right, and you know, made enough money to go back home and build this two-story house my father grew up in. So that's sort of the family lore. But uh, uh, somehow I didn't know the detail about you know it's actually in California building the railroad.、Um, 
But、uh, the initial reason that I got interested in the subject is that I was co-teaching an interdisciplinary course with a history professor at my school, Providence College,、uh, on East and West encounters. And one of the unit was、um, about early Asian immigrants、um, in America and the kind of systemic pressure、uh, they were facing. So I was struck by how how much I had not known about all this this history. I didn't know that ninety percent of the Central Pacific Railroad workers were Chinese. I didn't know that the first U.S. immigration law was the Chinese Exclusion Act of eighteen eighty two, which you know you know barred entry of Chinese labor laborers. Uh, and also banned those who were already here from becoming citizens.、Um, so I was, you know, thinking, why such ignorance? I've lived here for so long. How come I could be ignorant of this、um, history? And I thought maybe there are two main reasons. One was that、um, my American education so far had mostly been centered around white experience. And secondly, early Asian American experience had been largely excluded from the narrative, from public discourse,、um, largely written out of history. So after I finished my previous book, how I you know started to learn about this history more in depth, and the best way for me to learn about it is to to write about it. And that summer, when I was doing research, you know, I went back to China. I talked to my dad. And he said, "Well, that's where your ancestors been doing building the railroad." And suddenly, there's that kind of personal connection as well. You know, I, I feel like these people are my precursors. You know, they came here 150 years before me. So I wanted to see, you know, how their experience was similar or dissimilar to mine. You know, a lot of the things seem to be different now, but you know, during the pandemic. Some of the differences also collapse, right?、Um, you know, back then,、um, the racist refrain was "Chinese must go." Hundreds of people would hold those torchlight rallies, shouting this in unison. And then during the pandemic, you know, so many of us being yelled at, "Go back to China."、Um, so you see, I, you know, the the history echoes back in the present in. Very literal terms. Yeah, I mean, in fairness to you, many of us who grew up and went to school through our lives here also don't know much about early Chinese immigration.、Uh, you know, like the Chinese Exclusion Act,、um, Japanese American internment. Those are all essentially like one section or even a footnote in in the history textbooks, right? So、um, it's definitely a piece of history that. Isn't really dwelled on it in like our basic education, which which is sad because it is such an important part of history.、Um, like even learning about the railroad workers, like I'm still learning about them to this day, right? Like you know the way that your book centers on the Chinese railroad workers and depicts. The struggles they went through, as opposed to you know the the railroad workers coming from the east, where the terrain was much more flat, right? Like I think people don't realize that the reason why Chinese workers came to work on the transcontinental railroads was because the western 
portion of it was so treacherous because it went through mountains. And so the regular white workers did not want to do it. So they had to bring in like expendable labor. Yes. No one else wanted the work. You know, initially they didn't even want to uh, to hire Chinese because of the anti-Chinese movement. But because no one wanted to do that kind of treacherous work, they had to hire Chinese. So you know, yeah. thousands of Chinese yeah. worked on that railroad. And it's estimated that 1,200 died building that railroad because of that kind of work condition. And it's, I think it's extra interesting because these days, you know, the China, the Asian American narrative centers around like the model minority stereotype. Whereas as close as like 150 years ago, like we were seen as the illegal immigrants, the people coming to take the jobs, the undesirables. And so quickly it changes when you have someone else you need to like to oppress, right? When we yeah. think of Westerns, the first thing that comes to mind are, you know, white cowboys, saloons. And it isn't until recently that we've had stories centered on Chinese immigrants, the first wave of Chinese immigrants and um, the Chinese Americans who carved out lives here in California. Um, like some of the more, more recent books that came out are How Much of These Hills is Gold by C. Pam Zhang and uh, Four Treasures of the Sky by Jenny Tinghui Zhang. And I just want to ask you, like, were there any books that helped you develop the setting for for your own novel? Like, did you do field research? Because I know you're not from California, but you write the California setting so well. Thank you. Glad to hear that. Um, uh, I'm not from California. Um, I did lots of research, also did the field research. Um, you know, I, you know, to go back to that, um, idea of Western. Um, I haven't read a lot of Westerns, like the, the quote and unquote Western genre, but I watched uh, some shows just to get a sense of, you know, what's been, what's out there. I watched um, uh, Will on, Wills on Hell. <laughs> it's about the railroad building. Um, I watched That Wood, um, also set in that historical period in the West. I was really unhappy with the, their portrayal of Chinese. There's a, only this one Chinese character giving a voice, a face, and then he basically can be reduced to this person who feeds dead bodies to his pigs, right? Which is not historically accurate, right? First of all, so the character seems to be created for shock value and also to fit that kind of stereotypical um, Western gaze of Chinese, the so-called Oriental male, right? Um, I was just really unhappy. I felt really offended by those kind of portrayals. So I, you know, I, I felt I definitely am writing this book from, uh, you know, Chinese Americans' perspective. They're front and center. Um, and also, you know, just... Um, Give them a voice, recover their voice, give them a voice. But as to this, the second part of the question, the influence, um, so did lots of research. I read lots of scholarly works, so I get a clear picture of what's happening during that time. Um, uh, as to literary works, um, Maxi Hong Kingston's uh, Chinaman, that also one chapter is about building the railroad. It's also um, memoir. You know, it's about her 
grandfather's experience building the railroad.、Um, that was very helpful to read. And then Lisa C's、um, book called On Gold Mountain also said during that historical period.、Uh, but I did do do field work.、Uh, I went to California.、Uh, I I walked around San Francisco Chinatown. Even though I know the Chinatown,、um, the original one was burned down during the earthquake, but it was reconstructed to you know basically. Um, according to the old layout and architecture, so you know, I was able to walk around the the Chinatown, find those locations where my characters,、um, the setting for for the characters.、Um, then I also went to Truckee,、uh, another main setting for the novel. You know, even though the Chinatown there had long had been long gone, but I was. You know, able to just feel the air. You know, smell the air. You know, look at the river, the rail track,、um, the plants, the trees. Just get a sense of that place. I also took a train across the Sierras.、Uh, the the rail line was rerouted in nineteen ninety three. So the train no longer passed that those、um, tunnel, those、uh, summit tunnels. I wrote about. In the book, but、um, I watched a YouTube video of someone, you know, trekking through the sixteen hundred feet tunnel.、Um, it was is covered by graffiti and looked very haunted, even in daytime. <laughs> yeah, I mean, your story centers on four characters of different backgrounds, but all connected somehow.、Um, that came to America to seek. Not fame and fortune per se, but to to seek a better life, and that's the way immigration still works now, right? Like your situation at home isn't tenable or isn't ideal, so you move somewhere with opportunity. And it's really interesting that you know throughout your book, you you your characters call San Francisco Gold Mountain,、um, which you know Joe Jingsan is what we call is another name for San Francisco. That for the longest time, I never understood why we didn't just call it like. Something closer to San Francisco,、uh, but you know, learning that it came from back when you know San Francisco was seen as like the the promised land for for Chinese immigrants, especially under you know back then the Chinese people were under the the rule of like a foreign power, right? So there was already oppression at home, and now you they moved to this new place where there's supposedly more opportunities, but just as much oppression. It just seems like the maybe even more the crystallized version of like. Yeah, right, that's just how America works back then, and maybe today too.、Um, and I just thought your book captures kind of the every single chapter in your book, even the quiet ones. There's always like a specter of potential violence, and you know, it just really felt like I could never relax while reading your book because I was always in fear that one of these characters was going to get hurt. I mean, your book、page. is definitely not a relaxing <laughs> read. I will give you that. <laughs> how was it? You know. Keeping that tension up, right? Like, how how did you go about just making sure that you know people were aware of like you know being a minority in in a country that like hates minorities is already really hard, but like to capture that feeling on page, how was that for、mm, you? Yeah, I guess like I learned so much about this period、um, through my research, and I was surprised about the extent of violence these people. Experience had to live live through, right? 
Um, but when during the pandemic, and I wrote much of the book during the pandemic, and、uh, it just felt very real. You know, I personally being yelled at too, and I didn't feel safe walk going out. My daughters also being called names. So you know, those kind of things just suddenly feel. Is there? It's not history anymore. It's the present, right? So I definitely、um, wrote some of my own emotional experience into the book.、Um, yeah, it maybe when you say it's not a relaxing book, I totally agree. <laughs> But、uh, I mean, I think in some way because it's it's something you can actually relate to now, right? It's not just something you imagine what happened in the past. But it's something that actually is still so much, so present. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. I think、um, like this generation has definitely, like, I don't know, like it was a wake up call for a lot of young Asian Americans. Like, oh, we can. It's like they can turn on us really fast. We can be the enemy, and we can be seen as you know diseased and unwanted. Just. Because of external factors that have nothing to do with us, and like I, you know, I felt the oppression when I was reading your book. I was like, wow, I feel like this wouldn't have hit as hard if it hadn't come out. If your book had came out before the pandemic, and I, I feel like the emotional impact definitely、uh, was part of the reading experience that made it、uh, more powerful, in my opinion. Oh, thank you! I'm glad to hear that. So your book has,、um, I guess, four main characters if you count、uh, Daoshi.、Um, but、um, you have Shishang, who is the ten-year-old、uh, who comes to America to find her father, and you have、uh, Guifeng, who is her father, who is working on the railroad, and、um, you have Feiyan, who is in the sex trade, and.、Um, Was、uh, was Guifeng's first love? There's there's a background story there. It, it and I'm just curious as to was there protagonists that jumped out at you in the very beginning? Like their voice came out very clearly. Yeah, I even before I started writing the book, I knew I wanted to have a male character who's a real railroad worker, not only because of this. Family connection, personal connection, but also because that was、uh, one of the very few professions available for Chinese back then. You know that yes, many Chinese were building the railroad,、um, and also I knew I wanted to have a female character who's in the sex trade. And, and a lot of people forget that there were Chinese women. There were、then. not a lot because of the Page Act, the 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 eighteen seventy five that basically restricts Chinese women from coming to America, so that the the men could not start a family. Right. Ah,、uh, so so the the few Chinese ended up in、uh, California. Many of them were forced into the profession. A、uh, prostitution, so I knew I didn't know what their dynamic would be like, but I knew I wanted to write about them. Then when I started free writing, uh, the the child character Sixian sort of emerged, possibly because my daughter was ten year old back then. So I was I felt both 
scared and、uh, compelled to、uh, imagine what would happen to a girl like being taken away from home and being alone in this alien world. Uh, then the narrative of the girl looking for her father、uh, came after that, and then、um, when I was reading the fa- writing the about the father's railroad days, Dao、uh, Shi the Dao Shi character surfaced、uh, because I felt I needed、um, you know religious、uh, like spiritual spiritual presence in in this community. You have a quote in your book that really struck me. It was, "This is Gold Mountain. We're all shapeshifters, and all of your characters go through、uh, transformations throughout their lives." I mean, you have Feiyan, who was a prostitute, and、uh, you know, through、uh, circumstances, she dresses up as a man and finds、uh, independence in her own business.、Uh, you have Shishang, who. Was kind of working as a servant for a Chinese family,、uh, was sold and、um, got quote unquote rescued by white white missionaries. So like <laughs> everybody has their own journey, their own transformation.、Uh, how did you decide the trajectory of each character's path? Hmm. I get a lot of this. Oh, just、um, intuit. Like I think the characters, most of the characters'、uh, development come to me intuitively. So I did lots of free writing. I, like I think of it, free writing is just like without kind of objectives. <laughs> I will just sit there, focus on one person or one you know, one emotion or one sentiment, and start free writing. Then somehow they just you know, the narrative started to sort of form. You know. Pretty natural way,、uh, but before I did that, I read a lot of stuff. You know, I read. I wanted to learn all aspects of Chinese immigrant lives during that time period. So there are just lots of information in my head.、Um, when I started free writing, I felt like some of those information sort of just synthesized. They were integrated into a narrative. So it's not something I cannot have to. I sit down and say, "This person need to do this and do this at this point." So it really came to me pretty naturally through the pre free free writing process. That's impressive because all of their paths cross in the latter half of your book, and I, I just figured that that requires a lot of mapping beforehand. So the fact that it was、uh, natural that that is quite <laughs> impressive. Yeah, and your novel spans decades, right? It's like we meet Wei Fang when he first comes to、um, the states before his daughter's even born,、um, and then we meet his daughter when she's ten, and then it goes on until twenty, so ten years. Yeah, like what was that like、um, deciding upon that structure and going back in time? The alternating, yeah, the alternating、uh, timelines. That that、uh, structures. I think that was borrowed from Toni Morrison's *A Mercy*. So I was reading Toni Morrison because you know this is a new genre for me—a historical novel. And when I think of historical novel, I just think I, I thought of Toni Morrison. So I read and reread some of her works.、Uh, when I read *A Mercy*, it also involves multiple characters, multiple perspectives, and interwoven 
uh, structure. So I thought that was befitting structure for my book because, you, you know, I, I, I have multiple characters and I wanted to give all of them a voice. And um, so that's how that structure came into being. Yeah. And, you know, your two female uh, point of view characters, um, Sushang and Feiyun, they're very strong characters. I think they're probably stronger than the male characters in the book because they're much more driven, much more, you know, keen to survive. And it, they have to be, right? Because even before they came to America, they were already oppressed under like a very, you know, traditional Chinese society, especially back then, very patriarchal, very like females had not a lot of power. And, you know, coming to the States, they, they're able to kind of use that resilience to really survive or like try to survive. And it's really interesting because, you know, the stereotype for not just Chinese people, but Chinese women is like docile, subservient, and your characters are anything but. Um, can you talk to us about developing your your two female characters? Yeah, so they are the characters who are not just facing racism, you know, with, you know, external uh, racist, racism from us from outside of the community. They are also um, facing sexism from within the community. So they're experiencing violence both within and without the community, right? The, the, the kind of pressure is so substantial. And to in order to survive, they have to adopt, and like you said, shape-shifting substantially to, to adopt, to adapt, right? I feel like they had to be strong characters because how else are they going to survive? I mean, like women back then, it's like, it's like either you die or you adapt. And um, that was just the life of an ordinary Chinese woman back then. And the fact that we look back on it and we're like, wow, they were so strong. But for them, it was just, it was just ordinary. Yeah. Yeah. They're just uh, trying to survive. And also, Sometimes um, they also want to transcend from mere survival, right? Just, you know, especially like Sixiang's goal is to find the father, bring him home to reunite the family. So this is something that keeps her going. It's, it's something essential to her, right? Keeps her hope up. Um, it's something that's sustaining her. And then Fei Yan's goal is to claim this place, find her own place here, because she knows she cannot go back to China. So she has to build a home for herself, right? So they're both doing it, doing this uh, unapologetically. Uh, so I, um, I like that. And I also know, of course, there are other people who, who do succumb to the pressure. Um, but, um, and in my novel, there are, plenty of those characters who end up succumbing succumbing to to the pressures but those two characters they have some kind of um um inner strength and and that keep them going uh your title derives from a Taoist concept of straw dogs uh can you explain this philosophy to our listeners and how do your characters relate to this philosophy Yes. Yeah, so um, when I was working on the novel, I was also interested in Taoism. Um, it's a Chinese indigenous philosophy that sees a fundamental principle underlying all realities or flowing through all things. 
and for lack of a better word, that um, principle is known as Tao all the way. Um, so uh, I was interested in the idea, is the Taoist idea of Wu Wei, uh, which literally just means non-action, but it's not inaction, it's more like action performed according to Tao. So action performed appropriately and optimally. Um, so when I was rereading, I was interested in the concept and how it's relevant in my own life, especially in my writing. Um, so when I was rereading Tao Te Ching, I came across this line, uh, which I quote in the novel. Um, and it's a very puzzling line because the, the phrase 不人 can be literally translated as inhuman. Inhuman. So heaven and earth are inhuman. They see everything as straw dogs. But I guess that phrase can also be read more nuancedly, um, especially in this context. So straw dogs are figures of dog, dogs used in ancient China uh, as uh, ritual objects. So they're prized when they're um, used for sacrifice, then discarded or burned afterwards. So in heaven and earth, eyes, everything are just like straw dogs. They go through the cycle of ascent and decline. And heaven and earth do not favor or disfavor. You know, they don't take sides. They don't uh, give preferences. They stay mutual, unlike human, you know. So, so I sort of wrote my inquiries into this novel through the Dasha character. And uh, so he, you know, he's from, you know, he's originally from this uh, generations of Taoist priests. And when he comes, he leaves home for uh, America as a prospector. He sort of renounces the family profession. But when he's here, especially building the railroad, he finds himself ruminating over, you know, especially the idea of way how to act according to Tao in a world that's hostile and perilous, right? So he quotes that line um, to Guifeng. And uh, from ever since then, the Guifeng starts to mouth, mouth over this idea of straw dogs during different stages of his life, especially when he feels his life is brittle and he feels maybe it means the universe doesn't care. The universe is indifferent. Um, it's, um, there's no supreme power that weighs in on human affairs, right? So he, you know, thinks about, you know, so straw dogs become a kind of motif, um, a kind of uh, points of reference for him to measure his own life against. But then there's also times when they see the other side of this straw dog um, analogy, you know, when they recognize the preciousness of their lives, you know, and the preciousness of 
their loved ones' lives. So I think that this is this is something I use in this um, in this novel um, as a way to for them to make their own spiritual inquiry um, and also write my own inquiry uh, <laughs> as I also sort of grapple with these ideas. Yeah. I really related to whenever Daosu would break out one of his proverbs and someone would ask him, what does that mean? Because it just reminds me of when my parents would break out their Confucian proverbs whenever they wanted to lecture me on something like, I don't know what that means. You need to explain it to me because, you know, the proverbs are all very cryptic. It's something that like you always need to see clarification. I really relate with that. Yeah, it's a very old text and uh, it's just a- there are not many words, so they're very ambiguous. <laughs> so people are still interpreting what they mean. So that's also make it interesting, right? You know, the you know characters of you know, Dasha keeps thinking what this means and how do I apply this <laughs> in this world? Yeah. Well, your book came out earlier this month. Um, how has the reception been? Uh, I think it's doing pretty good <laughs> i'm not sure i might not be the right person to answer this. are you are you one of those authors who like don't look at reviews like you're just like i just want to focus on the writing i mean at the initial stage before it, it came out i did look at reviews and now i just feel like i need to limit myself <laughs> to look at those i think things. that's a healthy yeah decision. yeah uh, not yeah. checking emails too frequently you know so just yeah, it's uh, for, for the sake of self-care. <laughs> well, I think it's a wonderful book, very beautifully written about a very important time of history. So are you working on anything new or is this, are you taking a break from writing for a little bit after this book? Yeah, I'm taking a break. Uh, I was writing some poems <laughs> in the summer and now just during the semester, just, you know, working, teaching, so a lot of things going on. Hopefully I'll start something next year. No pressure. <laughs> But uh, thank you so much for writing um, a book about such an important part of history, about such brave characters. And thank you so much for joining us on Books and Boba. Thank you. Really enjoyed our conversation. And that was Ye Chun, the author of Straw Dogs of the Universe, um, available now at booksellers everywhere, including, as always, the Books and Boba bookshop. Um, if you go to booksandboba.com and check out our online bookstore, um, your purchases not only help out the Books and Boba podcast, but also help to support your local bookstore. So um, win, win, definitely. And another way to support the Books and Boba podcast is to join us on Patreon, um, where, again, you get access to our members-only Discord, as well as our monthly bonus Boba Chat episodes. Um, on the latest Boba Chat, um, I share about my recent honeymoon to Europe. So if you want to hear about my what shenanigans I was up to, um, definitely uh, come support us and check it out. Before we go, uh, Rira, can you uh, remind us what we are reading for book club for November 2023? Yeah, so we are reading Squire by Nadia Shamas and illustrated by Sarah Alpagi. Um, and this is our first time reading a book by a Jordanian author. So I'm really excited to uh, read it. It's more, it leans more towards fantasy. And I've heard great things about this graphic novel. So I'm really excited to dive into it. Um, it goes into empires and uh imperialism and i'm just really curious as to like how it translates into fantasy so that is what we are reading for the month of november 
yeah, excited. It's um, I'm always excited to read a graphic novel. Um, you always think it'll be less work, but then you know, sometimes art is so good you have to, have to look at every single panel, and it takes even okay, longer. Okay, but this is this is not a breezy read. <laughs> like, just a fair warning. Um, I mean, it's not a grim tale either, but it is leaning more towards fantasy. You have a main character who wants to be a knight, so it it, it has like a fun nature to it. However. It dives into empire and imperialism, so there are some heavy themes in it. But I think it's going to be a fun yeah. read. Excited to discuss that with you at the end of the month. And as always, if you've already finished Squire and have some thoughts to share, uh, please let us know either on our Discord or our Goodreads forums, so that we can also include your comments in our discussion as well. Um, but with that, that'll do it for this episode, of Books and Boba. Thank you once again to Ye Twin for joining us, and we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Mi Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Sharon. Hey, Remen. How are folks still racist? I know, right? We're like two decades into the 21st century. Yeah. And second question, where's my jetpack? Well, I can't help you there, but have I got a podcast for you. Modern Minorities is a show where each week, my longtime pal Remen and I uncover common and uncommon truths that we all need to hear for our majority brains and ears. Yeah, Sharon and I have spoken to doctors, lawyers, directors, climate activists, angry Asians, athletes, chefs, writers. Folks who are black, brown, gay, straight, and everything in between. Past guests have included comedian Margaret Cho, Southern Poverty Law Center journalist Geraldine Mariba, comic creator Jean Lun Yang and many, many more. We've even talked about Ramadan, Black History Month, Kamala Khan, and Robin being queer. It's like we're trying to solve racism with the podcast. Challenge accepted. So check out Modern Minorities at modmypod.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Remember, we're all modern minorities, but we're no one's model minority. Modern Minorities.